Welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, 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 everybody. Welcome back to another knock on podcast and we're rolling and uh yeah this is awesome Uh, i got a lot of people watching right now live this is going to be a post ata podcast so ata stands for the archery trade association Uh, my buddy andy stump said it i think he thought it standed for like archery trade of america um which could also be possible but i told him it was archery trade awesomeness so regardless of which ata abbreviation you like we are going to talk a little bit about the show um i guess i want to start by saying off saying that as much as i wanted to get around and video a lot of different products uh the first morning that i was there i actually went in the show about an hour before the show started specifically to um, do some of the duties that I have to do for companies outside of just doing what I do for all of you. So I had to deliver catalogs that I had made for people and had to deliver uh, DVD loop tapes that I did for certain companies. So um, during that, I was able to look at some of the stuff that I was walking by and do a few little uh few little videos based on some of the products that I was able to finally show all of you and it all was going as planned until uh, the show opened at 8 30 and then from 8 30 to 5 30 it was pretty much non-stop and I know there were some people that have even made posts that they were waiting to talk to me and um, I was not able to break away so I really apologize for the people that I missed. Um, but uh, the bummer part about it is I never got a chance to walk. I actually was I was probably in three aisles of the entire show um, for all the time that I was there. So if it wasn't something that I walked by in that 100-yard stretch, then that was it. I was ever, never able to detour on my own and walk around so uh, I know there was a few things I heard some buzz about and I popped around about I actually think I saw a few of those here in the first few questions so we'll get into that Um, but yeah I want to do just a little bit of recap about what I saw um, answer some of your questions first because some of that could be relating to that and had a you know one thing I want to talk about is I finally had the opportunity to meet Adam Greentree too, um, which has been a long, long time coming for him and I uh, to finally meet because Adam uh, Adam is really, really obviously important for the industry right now. And one thing that I feel really good about is um, many years ago, I'm trying to think how long it was, Adam and I were both trying to think back. Um, I was actually given five bows And the assignment that I was given with the five free bows was to find five people in the world that would make an impact. Five people that no one knew. That was what 
um, goal I was given. And through a lot of research, I kind of wanted to find one key person in each demographic outside of the U.S. And after doing a ton of research uh, throughout different parts of Australia and New Zealand, I came across Adam's name, started to read some of his very, very first writing pieces, and then just called him out of the blue and talked to him. And this was, like I said, a long time ago. None of you knew him then. And uh, obviously that that one mission, uh, I can honestly look back and say mission accomplished. Um, it was really fun to see him and meet him and finally hook up. And um, yeah, I'm pretty certain that uh, Adam and I are going to get together and try to do a cool hunt together too. So uh, that could be pretty awesome, but, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's funny how archery brings so many people together. And one thing that I think is important about Adam's story is that he's always been true to his passion. And, you know, what caught my eye about him is how he's always stayed. He's never tried to become something different and he's never tried to, um, I don't know. He hasn't, he hasn't tried to do this you know, try to fit this mold that so many people are walking around. The one thing that kind of, I don't, I don't want to say it bothers me, but you know, there's, there's a lot of fakeness walking around the ATA show too. And that's just not my, that's just not my environment. So that's why, um, my dinners, my groups of friends that I have on dinners or, you know, people that I sit around with is pretty small there. Um, you know, I'm kind of a small group, small community type person, but was able to have some really, really cool, uh, experiences. I kind of, uh, was Adam and I really wanted to hang out. So all of our dinners, the first dinner was, uh, me, Sharon, Adam, Kim, uh, Remy, Ben O'Brien, Andy Stumpf, and Cam. And also Cole, I believe. I'm trying to think who else was there. That was actually the second dinner. The first night's dinner was with uh, Jim Miller uh, and Antoine. And then the third night was uh, me, Cam, Adam, Sharon, Andy, and Kim. So it was. Uh, we had some pretty good opportunities to talk about stuff that we're passionate about. And uh, I couldn't be more thankful for that. But there was a ton of you that came up to me at... You know, the Hoyt, Easton booths, um, also Faradine and things, and um, had some awesome, awesome questions. But more importantly than all of that to me was how many of you out there uh, came to me with success stories? Because that was really something to me that really hits home is how many people just literally came up to say, I set my bow up for the first time, you know, pulling a knock to it out of your pocket and, you know, asking me questions and then me saying, Hey, do you have a picture of yourself? Let me look at that picture. People pulling out a picture of their shooting. And I actually had this conversation, I think on the Gritty Bowman, I did a podcast with the Gritty Bowman as well. Andy and I both, that'll be a good podcast. You'll definitely want to check it out. Um, but I just talked about how many people are so much further ahead in archery this year than any other year and how many people, when they show me them shooting a bow for the first time in, in a year, in a, just a year's time, there's just so many of you out there 
that just have great form, awesome foundation. You're so close to just being as good as you want to be. And uh, man, that's just, you know, I know that you came up and thanked me because of the videos and things like that. But, you know, just because there's information there doesn't mean you're willing to take the time and commitment to, to use it and absorb it and apply it. And I'm really, really proud of all of you out there who are applying it every single day because you're making archery look better and you're making it look easy. And, um, yeah, I can't thank you enough. It was a very, very humbling experience for me to be there and see all of you, uh, with all these types of stories and how good your shooting form was and everything like that. So again, I want to say thank you to everyone that was there. Um, thanks for all the support. Um, we did try to do a very informal meet and greet out just outside of the ATA show entrance for people to come that couldn't get in. We had people driving up to a few hundred miles uh, to come see us, and that was with all the terrible road conditions. So thank you to all of you as well. You guys are all awesome. So let's jump into the first question here, um, and I'm just going to start at the top. So those of you who are reading social media this morning and wanted to make a comment, uh, then you're going to be in. So first question is from JM Hart 1010. He's asking, um, have I been able to test the new Rage head? So the new Rage Extreme um, is a is a head that has a real cool cut on impact front fixed blade broadhead and then a full deployment two inch cut Rage. So it's a brand new Rage Extreme with the full fixed blade head on the front. It is channeled out. I would say, you know, it's. I would say it's resembles a grave digger or a silver flame. Um, you know, I think it resembles a fixed blade similar to those. Um, so because of that, you know, one of the questions I know people are going to want to know is: Is it quiet? Um, anytime you have any type of cutout in a front fixed blade, it will probably start to generate some noise. So, um, because there's more surface area, I mean, it's naturally going to draw more air than just if you're going to compare it to a small straight hypodermic. Now, if you're going to compare it to other ones within the same category, it's actually going to be a little bit better for noise because the natural rage, uh, broadheads tuck away in a very very good fashion um, and they're out also the main blades are towards the rear um, so I haven't been able to test the production one the last time I was trying to think I actually saw one back in April maybe um, April or May time I saw one and shot one in the test lab um, shot good there obviously um, having one and shooting it here I have not yet but when I do I will let you know um, next question here um, is uh, my thoughts on the Acubo um, opinion is it good for practicing your form um, I think what's good about the Acubo is that you can use it for building some strength and you could use it for you know learning to hold tension at full draw um, it doesn't have a solid wall so it's not going to be a tension that you could use for doing something for example like really learning the correct way to shoot a silverback or something like that because it doesn't have a wall you can just keep pulling it 
But if you've never ever shot archery and you just want to work on learning to pull and hold and maintain pressure at full draw without having to break a cam over, then from that aspect, it's good. Um, I think there's some improvements that could be made at a later time um, if they go into a different generation of the bow, just kind of in how it sits. And then also when you shoot, just, you know, you're, you have to stop that elastic uh, band with something. So they kind of have like a, almost like a stealth shot just under your grip. And it definitely has some slap and some noise to it. Um, so, you know, it doesn't, uh, it might over time, you know, kind of, I know that in the past I've heard, um, Joel, uh, Joel Turner, I think talk a little bit about like impact bracing and that's just people that start to associate loud sounds with, you know, actions. So pulling the trigger and a loud sound, sometimes it's just like with guns, even if the gun doesn't kick the gun going off you know, makes people want to blink or flinch. So, um, you know, just be mindful of that and try to ignore that. It's going to be different than a bow. Your bow isn't going to sound like that. So try not to at least bring that association over to the bow world. But if you're going to just really work on strength, having it laying in the, laying in the uh, living room, work on pulling back and mainly, you know, not just the reps of continually pulling it, but pulling it and learning to hold it you know, in a, in a fixed position, in a full draw position. Um, and then maybe even just working on pulling an extra two inches to your maximum and then letting down slow, but just learning, you know, learning draw cycle with something could be really good to just learn on raising the bow, drawing with the release hand directly in line with the top arms and shoulders, coming to full draw, holding, pulling that extra inch or two, simulating back tension, and then letting the bow down without losing posture, learning your draw cycle, it can be effective for that. Um, okay, next question here is from, it looks like Lee Hawk. He's asking, how important do you find arrow length to be when finding your proper spine? Um, use Archer Advantage, uh, but I have seen um, that you always cut to the let's see center the riser so um, well arrow length obviously directly affects the arrow spine because the length of the arrow is going to determine you know the longer the span of the arrow when you know if the arrow is longer and you're trying to flex it it's going to be easier as soon as you shorten that span and try to flex it it immediately gets harder and harder and harder so the further out you go the more you can flex an arrow. So arrow length has a lot to do with spine. When it comes to where do you cut your arrow, I personally like to cut mine, um, you know, probably about an inch in front of my rest most of the time. Or I, if I'm shooting a broadhead, I do like to have a broadhead at least even with my hand. I don't like broadheads sitting behind my wrist uh, just in case you ever break an arrow or something and that that point goes down. Um, I have shot my hand into my bow grips before when arrows break at tournaments. Um, I've pinned my hands to, to my bow grip. I've shot carbon arrows through my hands in the past. And, you know, that all comes down from, um, an important rule that you look on all arrows, you know, like on Eason's, it has a little check B4 and that's, that's pretty much giving you a caution of, 
every time you shoot those arrows into the target there is there's the chance that there's old field points in the targets or if you've shot a group into one spot and you have arrows cracking against one another there's a chance that you've broke the carbon or the aluminum it doesn't have to be a carbon or an aluminum arrow and if you aren't adamant about inspecting those arrows the best way to do it is grab the end roll that arrow up and down on your leg and if it has any types of structural cracks you'll hear it kind of cracking or splintering obviously that's one you just immediately want to throw away um, if you see any cosmetic um, spots where the where the wall of the arrow has been dented or caved in or frayed um, obviously always check your knocks if your knocks are cracked or if all of a sudden you go to put it on the string and it fits super tight um, where it's been hit on the outside and squeezed in or if it's been hit some in the middle and all of a sudden you feel it's really loose don't just squeeze it back tight again you need to throw that knock away because a lot of the accidents that happen with arrows being fired uh, into your hand is based on cracked or broken knocks and they break as soon as the force of the bow pushes on there and when it breaks it goes down and it'll end up putting the arrow into something other than the target um, so yeah length does matter about spine I personally like to cut mine pretty much right over the top of my hand I don't like it behind my hand um, so and depending on how much you really know about your draw length if for some reason you feel like your draw length is not a hundred percent in the correct position then obviously you're taking a chance cutting an arrow that exact because if by chance someone like me looks and says hey man you need to lengthen your draw length about an inch then at that time you're gonna now have your arrow further back from the center of the riser which if it, you're shooting target would maybe be okay but with a broadhead it's probably not something that you would want to do so keep that in mind um, I like mine almost in line with the burger buttonhole and another thing too is keep in mind that my arrows are overall pretty long because of my draw length especially comparing them to um, other professional archers so um, you know the longer the projectile the more wind can affect it whereas the shorter the projectile the less surface area there is for wind to affect it so you know, I just learned over the years that in tournaments or even hunting, if you're having longer shots, you definitely want to have a projectile that has minimal wind drift. So not having an arrow that's cut two or three inches too long is going to help you with that. So hopefully that helps you out. Um, let's see here. Um, let's see. Uh, GW240 saying he's going to reset up his elevate because he noticed that the screw attaching his whale tail uh, to the main part of the rest is coming loose. Um, and he also thinks he's going to apply the BCY polycord to go down to the limb instead of the steel cable. And he's asking, do I just tie a knot and then feed it through? So, um, there's a couple things there. Um, yes, for um, for if you're going to use D-loop material, all I do is I tie a knot at the end of a piece of loop material. I tie a knot, pull it really tight, 
so that the knot is really tight and won't give. I cut off, cut off the excess, fuzz it up a little bit, and burn it down really nice. So I pretty much just have a small little ball, a small little knot. Then I'm trying to show everybody looking um, here that's watching live. Okay. Then I'll go ahead and pull um, that knot tight to the side of the bracket, um, which is on your limb if you're shooting a limb-driven system. And then I'll tighten that screw all the way down on that. And I'll have my excess, which I'll feed up to the rest. And when I'm ready, I'll pull that through, take all the slack out of the D-loop cord, make sure the air rest is flat to the riser, being properly supported with the cage. And I'll tighten down that screw holding the cord. Now, when it comes to the screws that really hold your launcher blade on, or for that matter, any screw in general. Um, I actually had this conversation uh, this weekend with someone at the show because there was someone that um, was saying that they, um, and it actually, it wasn't one of our rests, but they said that they went on a pack-in trip and they used a mountain bike for the first time. And they said they had a, um, a rear, kind of like a rear, tire frame mounted scabbard for their bow said by the time they got back to where they were elk hunting and took their bow out of the scabbard that some parts on their sight and their arrow rest had actually rattled off and that they were all the way back there without a set of allen wrenches so you know what you need to realize is as archers is you know all these little parts that you have if you're continually vibrating your equipment, um, things can come loose. And, you know, that's one thing that I do. Um, like, for example, I think when towards the end of when I did Rogan's build on that Black Mamba bow, I actually, when everything was said and done, I went through that entire setup with a set of Allen wrenches and just put them in there and made sure every single screw on the rest, every single screw on his sight. Would, and honestly, like on his sight, um, he had an option sight. There were several screws that were not very tight. Um, there was some, there was, I'm trying to think. I think there was a screw that I wanted to tighten more on his rest as well. Um, I've had that happen with stabilizers. I had some stabilizers. This happened with um, Chad Mendez. He had a stabilizer that had some loose parts internally within the stabilizer. So a lot of his bow noise was coming for, from that. Um, so just be cautious of that. The other thing too is um, even just double checking your cam stops or if you shoot a modular cam, um, you know, it's easy, it's really easy when a dealer sets up your bow for the first time um, to, you know, remove a peg off one of the cams, put the peg back in, then do your modular screws. It's really easy to forget one screw. And a lot of times when you start hearing a buzz or a noise, that's indicator of a screw coming loose or a screw starting to buzz. So in that case, just make sure that you actually go through and check all those and if you're putting your bow in a situation where there's a tremendous amount of vibration you're going to have more of that happening and just don't ever assume that something that you're taking out of the package has all of the screws tight 
Um, those people that are sitting there doing that, that is a super, super repetitive job and it happens all the time. It's easy to forget one. So even if you took an arrow rest out of the package, put it on and it shot a bullet hole right away, do your due, do your due diligence, go in and just snug up each one of those um, screws just a little bit. So, um, and that's true for everything. I actually took my um, my felt outfitter bike to a bike dealership the other day because I had put a, a locust thorn through one of my tires in a spot where it didn't have protection, had a flat tire, and then also there was a recall on um, the type of component that I have um, for my custom disc brakes. So I took that in and they replaced that, they replaced my tire, and when I got it and I was going to take it for a ride, I could hear some stuff rattling on it and they had forgot to tighten down um, a few things on my on my tube and they were, uh, forgot to re- tighten down the entire lever for my brake. So it's no different. Just you know, do your due diligence. If you've been out and you've had your bike rattling around on the back of a four-wheeler and the, you know, or rattling around in a truck, any of that stuff, just always check those. It'd be pretty important. Uh, let's Next question, BM Stoop is saying, um, I keep my silverback set to the same tension setting that I do when practicing my bow as when I'm practicing with the right release. Is this correct? Um, thanks for all your time and effort. Uh, give back to archery, pretty much giving me thanks. Um, so the thing is with your bow, your pretty much the weight that your bow is sitting at at full draw is going to be a certain weight depending on the type of bow. If you're shooting a 70 pound bow with an 80% let off, you're going to be you know only holding 20%. So you know 70, 20 is going to be 14 pounds. So, you know, it's only going to be 14 pounds. When you're shooting just a piece of string as a trainer, like with the right release, um, you are the one yourself who has the ability of how much pressure you're putting on that string. Because essentially, you're you're not using a cam system. You're just using a string. So what you want to learn to do is pull that string back to where you have some tension on the string and you're able to beat your draw length but where you're not building a tremendous amount of pressure on that string because what's nice about it is just learning to have some tension and let off that safety and continually build the pressure almost from one pound all the way to that 14 pounds before you know you get it to fire or you know most situations you're going to have your silverback set anywhere from three and a half to five pounds over your holding weight. So, you know, you'll learn to build up to about 17 pounds of pressure before that fires. If you just have a whole bunch of pressure, you know, it's, it's, it's not that hard, uh, to pull 14 or 17 pounds. You know, if you're at a gym and you have a cable machine, you know, put it on 15 and pull that thing towards you. It doesn't take much weight. So likewise, when you're pretending you're at full draw with the right release, uh, it's pretty easy to put that much tension on there. So just just be mindful about how much tension you do have on there uh, before you let off that safety and start pulling through. 
Um, let's see here. Um, okay, I've been watching your bow builds. I'm about to break down a Hoyt factor and is wondering if you need a bow press to adjust your peep level um, as I'm switching to thumb releases. So um, it really depends how much adjustment you need, and that's going to depend on where your anchor position was on your wrist strap release prior. If your anchor position was lower, then you probably are going to have to adjust your peep much lower. And you know what I found is once you start to go, you know, a quarter inch, normally a quarter inch, your peep's going to almost go a quarter turn. If you go about a half inch, it could spin around almost a half a turn. So if you end up having to change your peep a half an inch, you're going to probably have to put that bow into a press to either flip your peep around or put, you know, maybe up to one turn or two turns back in the string to get it where it needs to be. Um, just be really, really, really careful with peep sights that you slide up and down your string when there's still pressure on it. There's a lot of peeps out on the market, and I can tell you that every year at the show, people have given me peeps. And there was, there was a company a couple years ago that they did a ton of social media marketing with their peep sites. They gave me a whole bunch at the show. I got some that were in green. I was pretty excited and literally put those in a bow and went to slide it a quarter inch to adjust it for someone, and it just cut the heck out of the string. And then each one that I was shooting after that kind of had the same burr and was cutting the string. So, you know, you really need to know that you have a, that you have a uh, peep that doesn't do that uh, before you start sliding it up and down because you can definitely cut strands uh, depending on that peep. So, um, and a lot of the peeps that are anodized are more likely to do it than some of the ones that aren't. Um, some of the ones have a better coating powder coating just for me has always been pretty good i just use true peeps um i've had some for 20 years or better 30 years and they do really really good so um there's your answer uh let's see here can you affect lefts and rights with your cam timing or synchronization you can um for a couple different reasons i mean obviously um your cam you know really your cam timing your cam position in the limb itself or your cam lean um, do uh, have effects at your lefts and rights because essentially um, for example if you put a string a brand new cable on you don't adjust your yoke and your top cam has lean into it you may find that even with you adjusting your rest the way that string travels to naturally wind up that string that's coming off of it if it's leaning and leaning at a pretty bad angle at full draw and as you shoot it's winding it up on an angle it could cause that arrow to deviate as well now sometimes adjusting the rest will compensate um, eat, but you know sometimes you're moving the rest to a position within the center shot of the riser that isn't favorable in order to compensate for that that's why I really like to start out by looking straight down my cams and making sure that my cams are directly running straight down the string. Um, most of the time, I actually like my top cam running perfectly vertical when it's at full draw, regardless of how it's sitting at rest. This year with the RX-1, I found 
that uh, it's actually just based on the new system. It tracks really well anyway, but in order to avoid having to do any of that, I actually right at my initial setup um, when I replaced my strings and cables, I just pretty much ran a laser and made sure that my cams were directly going right towards one another and my center shot set up really nice. Um, the other thing people out there, if you are shooting one of the new Hoyt systems, uh, your synchronization will be adjusted a little bit different. You're not supposed to do much twisting on, you're not supposed to do any twisting on the lower portion of the main control cable because you actually now have a split cable system down there. And the reason the top yoke is split to where the, the yoke system goes so low is so that you have ability to put a lot of twists in your top yoke system. If your cam is tracking straight, just make sure you put even twists on both sides to work on that synchronization and not adding twists down on the bottom uh, where they have, where a lot of people are used to in the past. Some of the aftermarket strings, if they're not built right, they actually start to turn down there and you start to get contact on your cam with those lower uh, control, the control split. So you definitely don't want to do that. Um, the other thing is, like I said, cam position within the limb itself. So, you know, if you're trying to even out cam um, limbs on systems that don't have a split cable system like the new Hoyts do now, and you need to try to balance that bottom cam if you're on a hybrid or a, you know, cam and a half type or a hybrid type system, you may actually have to position that cam slightly different within the limb itself to change the lean of that cam. Um, some of the Matthews, they'll come with little um, bushing systems that you can change out on the cam itself to actually shim the cam one way or the other way. So uh, it's always best to have your cam timing correct. I mean, and that's just part of it. So once you get it there, um, one second, got to sneeze. Ooh, went away, but I don't think it went away for long. Um, that's why I really like to mark my cams so I can always know where that perfect spot is. Um, let's see here. Um, how much is the new Sherlock going to cost? That was one of the products that I did show was the new Sherlock site. Um, it's an awesome site. Uh, I showed you, I guess, a model that's about 70% done. The attachment head for the hunting site part, it was not done yet, but I showed everyone... Um, the site itself with a 35 millimeter scope and I had a 29 millimeter scope in my hand. Um, I don't know for sure where the price is. I know that we really want to be directly competitive with the other sites that are within those, um, those markets. So obviously the Excel sites, the CBEs, uh, CBE hybrids, Anything within that realm is where it's going to sit. I can't remember offhand. I think retail is somewhere um, normally around $399-ish for those. So I think that's where um, the plan is for that to fall in. But I could be really wrong, uh, just giving you a heads up. But I do know we want the. it's important that the price comes in to where um, we're going to be able to directly compete against those sites that a lot of people are using right now. Um, 
Matt Paul Anderson is saying he's heard a lot on the podcast about building for long range accuracy. He's under he understands that a one to a two degree offset for veins is ideal for long range. And that's mainly because it does get your arrow turning, but it's not turning so fast that you know it's creating more drag, thus decelerating faster. Um, so he's saying, I plan on shooting field archery and some 50 meter outdoor tournaments. So since the majority of my shooting will be under 70 yards, what's your thoughts about a three degree helical? Um, so my thoughts are, uh, you could definitely do it, um, and if you're shooting shorter range, obviously, for me, that higher helical is more and more important the shorter your max distance becomes. Um, for example, I actually went to a three degree on, I, I'm actually shooting a three degree on uh, an arrow that I'm, for right now, tentatively planning to shoot for 3D, which is a... Uh, Easton super drive I put a six fletch with a three degree offset with the PM 2.0 veins um, so the acceleration is going to be very very fast with these veins um, so it's going to turn quick but I'm really kind of building this specifically to um, a bow that I want to have just for shooting here in the backyard, mainly um, to 70 or 80 yards. I'm not, you know, planning on taking this to um, something like the Total Archery Challenge. When I do that, I'm going to actually just take my hunting bow. Um, so because those distances are shorter, I'm not as worried about um, drag. I want fast acceleration. I want to get this bigger shaft to straighten itself out faster and essentially what I was looking for is I want to get the same type of revolution rate on this 23 diameter shaft um, as what I do on the 2315 that I shoot for indoors so for indoors I shoot a um, a three inch vein with a full three degree helical on my indoor setup because I want it turning very fast. I just know that that three inch vein um, for some of the 3D stuff that I want to shoot has just a little bit uh, too much crosswind um, drifting for my liking. So I'm actually going to try this to see if I can get the same stability and rotation out of this without having as much wind drift so I've actually got uh, and they're not here in my office I don't believe but I've got uh, some arrows fletched up with this combination as well as arrows fletched up with the three inch uh, combination and I'll see which one uh, works better uh, <laughs> Let's see. Do you have any? Uh, do you have a recipe for a tag soup? So I was actually thinking about this one. Um, I almost did a picture. I might do this because I was thinking about um, cooking some hamburgers here in the next day or two. So my thought was um, I had to eat it. I had to eat some crappy road food during this trip because we drove. So um, I actually ate a fast food double cheeseburger somewhere and it was wrapped in a 
little piece of paper perfectly and I thought you know if I took all my Iowa tags I could probably make a really sweet looking uh, paper hamburger holder <laughs> so that's my concept for the tag soup um, and actually for that matter let's just do this whoever uh, listen to this podcast I know there's a lot of you watching right now whoever posts the best picture and then you have to do two hashtags so i can find it first hashtag is going to be knock to fork n-o-c-k two f-o-r-k so hashtag knock to fork then hashtag tag soup uh whoever makes the coolest knock to fork uh food creation using uh your unused tag i'll uh i'm gonna send you a cool prize so I'm going to go ahead and give you guys a day or two to do that. And, um, and then I'll pick a, I'll pick a winner. So, uh, and I'll, I'm going to, I'm doing my hamburger one. I'm going to post that one to announce the contest. I might do that later today or tomorrow. So if you're listening, don't do the hamburger one. That was my idea, but come up with something cooler. Um, I'm picturing, uh, Depending on how big your tags are, you could uh, you could do a number of things. But uh, yeah, I'll, if you come up with a cool one, I'm gonna give out a prize for whoever has the best one. Uh, let's see here. When shooting your hinge, this one. Let's see that. Yeah, that was from JD Hap, by the way. The tag soup. Um, so Jim Bro- Jimbo Crawford is saying, when shooting your hinge, do you continue the pulling motion with your back as you relax your index finger? Um, just like you do with your silk, or let's see, as you do with your index finger, um, let's see, like the silver back or knock to it, or do you load your back statically and then just focus on aiming and relaxing only the index finger? So, with a hinge release, what he's talking about specifically is, and I'm going to talk about this when the two smooths are coming in. By the way, I got a call, um, two smooths are supposed to be what is the date today there was a delay again um by the way two smooths today's the 14th the two smooths are supposed to be shipping to the anodizer now on the 18th i thought they were already there that's what i was told but now it's not going to be till the 18th so two smooths are going to be later in the month now um but i will let you know knock to it's are stacked (laughs) we came back to a to a fully stacked uh front front uh foyer area with stacked boxes and boxes and boxes of noctuits so those are going to be going on here very quickly i don't know if sharon will do some today they may be tomorrow um, or the next day but you need to be ready and you need to make sure that you've signed up for that notify me where you put your email in on the website, knockonarchery.com, because once this batch is gone, it's going to be probably another four to five months before another batch comes in. We are expecting uh, a full sellout. Um, As big as this first two batches were, um, there's, it's going to, they will sell out. So I'm just letting you know. Um, But in regards to the hinge, I really want to do a video specific to this, talking about it when they come in and when all of you buy them. 
Um, but I want to talk about that. My, my attention is continually pulling, which if you go back and watch some of my practice rounds, um, some of the feeds that I showed where I was practicing or some of the videos I posted of me making shots, you can see my elbow and my hand, my release continually moving and my pull continually happening as I'm slightly relaxing my finger, but I'm definitely focused on the pull two thirds and the finger relaxation one third. And I'm focusing on that more than the aim. Uh, you really have to be careful on getting static with a hinge release. If you start to just be static and move fingers, um, depending on your cam system, you're really, really setting yourself up for creeping and coming off your rear wall. So continual movement within the rear half is still just as important with that hinge. And that was one thing I worked with Bailey on when I saw her shooting it, talked to her a little bit about, you know, your transfer of your pressure is good, but you have the movement has to continue. And part of the reason why I did that um, competition with Bailey, um, the one-on-one -on -one competition while we were live, was because I wanted to see how her timing changed. And her actual timing of her shot changed quite a bit once she thought that there was something on the line. And that was really because she was trying to hold more so than pull through the shot. So after that happened, we talked about that and I said, okay, I want your timing to be the same. Focus on the timing, focus on your count. And the she immediately started having those arrows come back together because she wasn't focusing on the aim. Being an aimer is a pretty dang risky place to go down. There's a very, very important balance between the two. Um, let's see here. Um, just looking through. Okay, um, there's pretty much a question here from Jazz Biker asking about how would you initially set the twists on your yoke system for Camline? So you really want to adjust these yokes at least to start um, on the on this new system. I would start with even twists and try to just make sure that that cam looking yeah this one's perfect that cam is directly going all the way straight to the other cam both of these are dynamite I'm actually holding up a bow um, that I'm gonna be building for uh, the president of the University of Auburn um, so they did amazing this year in football so I'm gonna hook them up with a sweet custom build uh, as a little way for him to fly some school colors down there uh, I did get some custom Rattler grips made in the orange and blue with the University of Auburn logo on one side and the knock-on custom build logo on the other side so this is gonna be a pretty sweet sweet setup um, so yeah with that bow just really focused on even twists on the yokes to start and just really focused on that cam got that cam tracking right down to that other one and years past on former model bows even just last year I found that I really liked having my cam just perfectly vertical at full draw so because of that system I would have to put a little bit more twists on the side of the yoke that your cable rod or your roller guard was on 
um, just because it's getting pulled over and the way that system works, it just didn't balance quite the same. So uh, that's kind of the two ways to do it, but you do, uh, you do wanna start it out in that vertical fashion. Um, let's see here. Um, why in Rogan's video tech, his techno hunt video, is he not using the Noctua or Silverback? Um, sometimes Joe likes to use, um, the very first release that he's shot a lot. He likes, he's got a big freaking hand and sometimes remember he's pulling a, a lot, a lot of weight too. So sometimes he does like to use, um, a different release. I've seen them use a target four as well as a two simple. Um, so um, he actually sent me a message last night after he shot those, um, after he shot that, that techno hunt. And I know, I knew he would geek out about it. I've told him to really be careful because on some of the techno hunts, when the animals are moving a lot and there's a time limit, you start to get yourself in a rush situation and you can start to create uh, poor habits by practicing on that more than you're practicing on static targets to where you're able to really minimize all the movement and stimulation that's going in. It's probably good to practice that from some standpoint for uh, someone who's never hunted before to learn to control that and make those shots, but you definitely have to be uh, a bit of a problem. Um, so kind of what I told him was, um, you know, just be careful with rushing your shots. And, you know, he said so far, no problems with that. And I just let him know those are the master of getting trigger anticipation. Um, and he said that his plan is after practicing on it today, uh, to shoot it with the silverback. Um, so, and then I made one comment specific, I won't repeat it, but it was about someone in the industry that has, uh, made quite the name for themselves shooting systems like that. So, um, told him he doesn't want to become that guy. Um, and I won't say who it is, but he will, he does shoot the silverback. Um, a lot of times he warms up with that. Again, that's one thing. Um, people that get truly comfortable with the silverback, they can shoot them all the time. Um, I'm one of those people that can Sharon and Harry both do all the time. Um, but a lot of people, once they've shot them for, you know, six months to a year and they understand how well it makes you shoot initially, um, you know, some people like to just warm up with that for a while and focus on those good shots. And if they're able to shoot a trigger release without anticipating it, then they'll switch to that trigger release, um, just to really have a little bit um, easier dynamics through the shot. But, you know, I'm a big believer in if it's something that you stick to, you can really make the two shots feel the same. Um, but it just definitely takes work. Uh, let's see here. What steps do you teach to help students relax while using a resistance activator release? Um, I'm really struggling mentally and I'm looking for some mind calming ideas. I talked at the, towards the end of the Gritty Bowman podcast, I talked a lot about um, mental rehearsal and mental training and also deceleration of how to decelerate your heart rate and how to 
um, kind of get over those fight or flight moments within competition. It's a tough thing to do. It takes acclimation and obviously it's something that the more you do it, the more likely you're going to get acclimated with it, but you do have to put yourself in that position to where you are going to get acclimated because if you don't, you're probably not. That's why a lot of these people that are shooting all the professional tournaments and every weekend they're at a pro tournament, you know, those people, as the season progresses, you'll just find that people just don't get as nervous during those shoot-offs as they do towards the beginning because you just start to acclimate yourself and even the best of the best are that way. Um, obviously, uh, you know, those first few days out hunting for the year, you're way more likely to get nervous than seeing deer, you know, towards the end of the season. It's the same exact thing. Um, so, you know, try to make sure you're doing it. If you're only doing it once a week or twice a week, your odds of being more nervous about shooting are going to be higher because you're never really going to develop, um, you know, a subconscious feel to where it feels super good um, if you're just continually going out there and you know it's a lot like me when I play golf I get nervous a lot um, in our little golf leagues because the only time I play is when I show up to the Wednesday league so it's not like I'm able to develop a feel that I'm familiar with each time I swing I almost feel like every time I go out and play it's a little bit different and that's just because I'm, I really don't do it enough to where I develop a feel that I'm used to. The same is true with that. If you're not doing it a lot, then you're going to most likely struggle with um, some of those mental barriers until you make the decision to either commit to it every day and get through it and or um, put yourself in a little bit more of a pressure situation and just learn to overcome it. Don't put... Um, the expectation of certain results on yourself because that's just going to be added pressure just say my goal is to come out here and just shoot my shots without without uh rushing the shot even i'm not going to worry about the pin i'm just going to worry about the pull just worry about the pull and you'll find that that just builds a stepping stone and they naturally just start to progress and they naturally start to increase um the other thing too is you know a lot of people continually try to go too fast with their shooting and especially with the tension activator releases they try to move themselves back too far and they try to shoot the smaller targets too far and as soon as you do that you're going to find that the length of time it takes for your shot to go off and also uh how much you're focusing on the aim both of those will start to happen when you're moving back too fast um, i'm just a big believer in uh you know a bigger target to start keep it close and that's why right now i really like indoor archery because you know it's one distance and if people are smart about it they can just focus on the repetition you know don't necessarily focus on the 300 focus on you know 30 shots that are good shots and and figure out how long it actually takes you to get to those 30 good shots and just say okay 
Last week I made 22. This week my goal is I want to really do 23 and, you know, just focus on getting those and keep telling yourselves that you get good shots by pulling through, not by holding your pin dead center in one spot. Um, I'm just going to take a quick look here while I'm looking at this. Uh, let's see here. I'm looking at uh, do, do, do. Elite Shooter 55. I'm just going to take a quick look at your shooting. Oh, can't do it. You don't have any pictures of your shooting form on your Instagram, so I can't help you out. Um, so sorry about that. Otherwise, I would have gave you some advice. Um, thoughts on the new Garmin Bosite. So the new Garmin Bosite was one of the things that was probably I heard the most about at the ATA show. The Garmin site is a brand new site that actually has a rangefinder built into the site. And this is actually a site that um, it's funny because... Um, I actually had a, about a nine month period to where I got, um, contracted to work on this same exact thing. It was for a different company though. Um, and they, I think we went through about seven generations of a lane laser range finding site that as you ranged, it automatically illuminated an LED position with on, the ma with on the reflective glass of where you would aim. So in other words, as the rangefinder is ranging, it's actually changing the exact aiming dot. So if you range something at 65 yards, it more or less just puts a dot in the center of the glass or on the glass right at that distance. So there was a lot of cool things about the Garmin version uh, you know the way that it it actually as you range it supposedly detects when your bow goes off and if your bow goes off and it senses that it would actually drop a pin to your GPS of where that last range was shot to um, so that's pretty amazing uh, to be able to do that uh, however, here's, here's the truthful downsides. Um, one, it's a thousand bucks, but that's understandable. Two, um, I really like, um, several of my buddies have Garmin watches. They're awesome. Harry actually has one. Um, I'm not a read all the directions type person. So I'm not the type of person if they had a very, very good um, tutorial, and actually those watching, you've got nine minutes, so I'm going to shut that off and come right back in a minute, and I'll finish talking about this. And while I do that, I've got to, um, I'm going to go ahead and kick this back on so I can keep talking about this, because this was, this was, truthfully one of the most talked about products at the show and if you walked by the show which I did make time to run over there to see it um, there was a tremendous amount of people waiting to see this site um, and they they did a good job of bringing that site back to the position 
that or to the position where I had left off on a very, very similar concept with another company. And a lot of times, um, a lot of times these products are made in similar locations um, overseas. So if one person bails out on a concept, a lot of time you'll see those people try to almost pitch that same concept to another company. And, and I have no, I, I don't know anyone in Garmin and I don't know if this was 100% by chance because it easily could have been by chance. Um, but the downsides to this site, okay, the downsides are this. One, um, the whole site's battery operated. So if you run out of batteries or if something happens where that site fails, you do not have a pin inside of that device, okay? Because the way it works is you've got a glass on the front, there's a reflective uh, almost like a reflective mirror on the side and it, it appears that the LEDs are being lit on one side reflecting off the angle onto the screen so if all your batteries run out or if your batteries run out or you forget about them you know you do not have an aiming apparatus you, you know 100% you don't um, if you get super nervous and you aren't a hundred percent gripping that bow correctly to where you're not understanding where that rangefinder is shooting to then the pin that it is giving you could be a distance that's way off so when i say that i also want to talk about the one thing that they did that was nice is they had um almost like the retina lock type of um, apparatus at the top of the Garmin GPS rangefinder. There's a small reflective circle that within that there literally is a bunch of small arrows all pointing towards a very very center small dot. And I'm talking this dot is like smaller than it's almost the size of a very small 19,000s pin. It's a very, very small dot with a bunch of arrows all pointing to the direct center of that small dot. And if you are torquing the bow left or right, the arrows will magnify or, or turn away as you move that dot with your torque up or down out of that small little circle. Now this circle is very small. I'm going to tell you it's it's smaller than the size of a dime. And um, the reflective circle, the actual small circle that you have to actually perfectly align in the center of that lens, like I said, is about the size of a 19,000s fiber. It was pretty hard to find it for me when I was just holding the sight and looking around with it. I just had it on a partial riser. When you're at full draw, it may be easier, but the tough part about it is you're trying to align that perfectly, which that dot is at the top of your sight window. You have Once that's aligned perfectly, then you have to make sure the little green illuminated light in the center of the sight itself is now pointing on the object that you want it to be ranging. So if you're ranging something small like a turkey, uh, at 70 or 80 yards, 
to look back and forth between those thing, two things could be difficult. So if you do that and you range it and say the turkey's 58 yards, it's going to illuminate a pin within that glass. As it illuminates that pin, that's obviously your aiming dot for that exact distance. Now, if you by chance somehow torqued that riser as you laze that, then it gives you a distance now that it'll illuminate a pin to where when you make that shot, you know, you may not even have the right pin for it. Now, there was a mode that when you hit it twice, I believe, it illuminates, a, you know, three pins um, so that you do have almost like a fixed pin display. But remember, you have to touch the button once to get the rangefinder going or twice fast, I think, twice fast to illuminate the four pins. So if you have this hanging on your bow hanger and you hear a buck, you hear something, you look and here's a buck coming in, you're going to have to grab that bow and know to double tap it twice to illuminate that thing. So it's cool, but in the same sense, it is something that you better be a hundred percent familiar with and know how to work or it could bite you in the butt. Um, now I showed, uh, and I'm not, I'm not just saying this next thing because, um, I'm a IQ fan, but I did show you the rangefinder that is on an IQ site. So I'm going to talk about, um, what I like about that. What I like about that is that there's a laser that you actually sight the laser that you can turn on or off. You can sight that laser in to the top pin, which is your range finding pin. So whatever your top pin is ranging, looking at, once you've sighted it into the bottom actual laser, you know your top pin is 100% your aiming and your lasing device. So what you're doing with that is you're just putting your top pin right on something you want to shoot and you're ranging it and it's just giving you a number up in the top corner um, of your, you know, the sight mount. So it's just giving you a number and from then you actually have fixed pins that are inside of your housing. So you're not, um, you're not having to wait for an illuminated reticle to come on. Um, and you, if you want to, if it's legal, you can also flip the laser on and also range and you know, you can just, you don't even have to look at the top pin. You can just put the laser on, click the button and look, you know, click the button or for that matter, you could even be at, you know, full draw, click the button where the laser's at, look at the yardage and then just put the pin on and shoot it. And then the last thing is a lot of the st uh, states where, uh, you know, electronics are limited or there's rules to certain electronics, those Garmin sites may not even be legal, nor would the IQ uh, laser site as well or any other um, electronic site. So um, take a look at both. Price-wise, it's going to be substantially different. Um, I'm probably going to, um, to try one of the Garmin's if I can, um, but based on what I saw, uh, there is a lot of similarities to a project that I did maybe a year and a half ago, um, or more. And it was something to where as cool as that was, um, it just never ended up 
being super precise. And I just found that even with that and how techy it was, ranging something and using the pin according to what I ranged was more accurate than, than that. Um, essentially, it's a small LED strip in there that has lights, LED lights stacked on top of one another. And there are certain yardages where it's not going to be a, a perfect illumination because obviously you're not going to get them close enough together to do every single yard. So I'm not sure how it actually roll uh, figures out those yardages um, unless there's multiple strips. If there were multiple strips that were counteracting one another to where they were all staggered, then they might be able to do it, but at that point, your reflection is going to be left or right of the other strip. So that is, uh, that's my thoughts to it. Um, and I am going to actually get a Garmin watch and learn how to use it because I think they're cool. Um, so what next is what exercise do I use to help my lower back? Funny enough, uh, yesterday morning, I was reaching to over to my bed to grab my shoe that was sitting on top of it and it was probably I was literally facing one way I turned around and reached over to get my shoe and just totally blew my lower back out I just fell to the ground and was my whole lower back just completely spasmed out and I was in bad bad shape the drive home was miserable I got right into bed and I just struggled miserably moving around all last night. And I actually remembered something that um, Sharon's chiropractor told her when she did the similar thing. Um, took a pillow and actually laid it directly underneath um, my hamstrings in bed so that it slightly elevated my legs up so it was closer to my butt cheeks but not all the way to my knees um, and had a pillow underneath there um, like a Tempur-Pedic um, one of my Tempur-Pedic pillows that were a little bit better and it actually just changed my pelvic posture just a little bit to where I had the best sleep I've had in a long long time and I woke up completely able to move around um, I'm blown away by that and I told Sharon I said I'm actually gonna start sleeping this way um, for me personally I know that um, the position of you know my bigger body and how I sink into a bed it seems like I'm never really that comfortable on my back this was the first thing that I did to uh, make my back feel better um, so that in itself I know people say that they struggle with um, tension in their lower back a lot when they're shooting and things and it's been there a while i think it could easily be relative to this especially bigger people that sag the bed in certain spots like i do um I, you know i'm long i have a lot of weight in certain spots so uh that's that but when it comes to actual exercises um deadlifts properly executed deadlifts are great for your lower back um, as well as, um, you know, just stiff-legged deadlifts. So keeping your legs perfectly stiff, hinging at the waist, and then coming up, squeezing, essentially squeezing your ass cheeks um, at the top. Um, you'll need lower weight with that. You know, be careful because you can certainly um, 
hurt your lower back if you don't use proper form or if you try to do too much too fast you'll find that lightweight um, you'll burn yourself out pretty quick do it for a few weeks before you start to increase weight um, also just back extensions you know there's a lot of um, kind of little fixtures at the gym where you kind of face down your heels are on a platform in the back that are holding your heels in a position and essentially all you're doing is bending at your waist over the pad and then extending up um, you know do it that way with just your hands on the back of your head as you come up and really flex your back and lift your elbows up as you're doing that um, then once you're able to do that for a week and you do well the next thing is to fully extend your arms all the way out so as you're coming up you actually have the weight of your arms out in front of you so essentially you're creating more weight out further away from you as you do that and then the next step past that would be to get an actual physical weight hold it on your chest first and go back to that where you're holding the weight on your chest and you're doing your um, lower back extensions and then grab a weight and slowly start to increase that further away from you and do the same thing i'd be very surprised if you can do a fully extended one with more than about 25 pounds but those are pretty much a progressional series of uh of exercises that can help your lower back um let's see here uh and that was that back one was from wink on the fly so uh and then joey Levis Levescu one two three is who asked about the Garmin site. Um, let's see, Chase Hand one thirty is saying, do you have a preference of French tuning versus paper tuning, and your thoughts on tuning um, out of a shooting machine versus tuning in the shooter's hand? So these are all like completely different types of things. They have importances in different areas. Um, so. When it comes to French tuning versus paper tuning, um, paper tuning for me is nothing more than a start and a way to identify if I'm having contact. Because if I have a tear that is continually doing the same exact thing, even when I'm making movements, I know that it's something very relative to contact. Um, either contact of the fletching or sometimes even how the string is tracking through the system. So at that point, I might play with um, you know your yoke position to slightly change cam lean, um, or you know even the types of grips that you have. Um, I actually really like um, the, so the great grips um, or the sorry the rattler grips that I have are great because. I specifically told Rob to make sure that the right side is a certain thickness. Mine, especially on the bone ones, a little bit thicker than the left side because I've just found um, on some of these newer handles, I actually find a little bit better tuned getting my hand a little bit further in to the right. Uh, and that grip allows me to do that. Um, so paper tuning helps me identify you know, either system error or contact. And, you know, mainly if you're just getting the same thing all the time, then that's certainly telling me that there's something that's going to cause a problem no matter which of these other three things I use, there's going to be a problem. Um, now, if I'm able to make adjustments and I can see my paper moving, my tear moving around, then I know that I have the ability 
to make adjustments and to have things shift around. So in those situations, um, the French tuning method is great because you're actually able to truly set your center shot so that you're shooting in the same line um, from 20 yards all the way throughout the arc to the farthest distance. Whereas if your arrow rest is adjusted incorrectly left, you would start out at one and as the arrow is tracking, it's continually going that direction where that arrow rest is too far out or too far in would do the same thing. So those are the situations where your bow is shooting perfect at 20, pretty good at 30, okay at 40, you get to 50, it's starting to hit to the right side of the dot. And then by the time you get to 80, it's hitting eight inches right or whatever. So the French tuning method allows you to really identify your center line for center shot where you're able to hit the same point from essentially zero out to you know whatever distance you can shoot. Now shooting machine is something that I've utilized for specifically for um, you know testing necessarily the ability of batches of arrows to group so um, if I have 12 arrows and I find a combination that shot my hole through paper, get a good little tear through paper, then I move on to my French tuning method. The bow's shooting a great center shot. I'm shooting a great line, zero to 20. I've got an arrow that I'm pretty dang certain about. I build a dozen of those arrows and sometimes at that point I'll put them in a shooting machine and just rip those down there and that's not a very quick process. But, you know, you can start to actually cull through your arrows at that aspect or at that point where you start to say, okay, you know, arrows 10 and 12 are continually flying out of the group. You've eliminated man error. You've brought in a machine to where then at that point you can decide whether you want to start working with your knock indexing to a point to see if you can bring that back into the group or if you just say the hell with it. By the time I sit here and mess with this, I could just buy another arrow. Um, so... You know, the shooting machine helps you identify that. The shooting machine might help you draw your bow back and you can take your release as your release is sitting in the shooting machine. And you can say, okay, well, you know, I think my hand is in about this position here. I'm gonna go ahead and shoot six arrows at 100 yards with the release in this position. And then all of a sudden take it and turn that release up you know, maybe to a slightly different angle or a slightly different degree of angle and shoot and see if your group starts to change that way. All of a sudden, maybe as you invert that release and you start to turn that release, you also start to take the string itself where it's fitting on the knock and you start to put pressure on one side of the knock to where then as you're shooting, you start to all of a sudden see, oh crap, when I take my release and I change it 15 degrees, now all of a sudden at 100 yards, I'm shooting left edge tens, possible nines. Um, so you can start to see how that starts to change, how that starts to affect. And then also you can change the rocking position and see how those change too, or even throw slightly different heel pressure on the grip, see if it starts to change that. Shooting machines are also great for creep tuning, drawing them back to full draw, shooting some groups, then all of a sudden drawing to full draw, creeping it forward one click to where the top cam's coming off the cable, shoot somewhat, you know, using the plunger to activate the release to where you start shooting some that way, and all of a sudden you start to see, okay, in this cam position, I'm getting a two inch creep at 20 yards, so I'm gonna go ahead and I'm gonna 
get that top cam to touch just a little bit before the bottom and see if this type of creep starts to help to where when you creep a little bit and the cable is still touching that cable and then it fires um, or the cable is still touching that cam and fires well now all of a sudden I'm still hitting in the center um, and then obviously once it comes to just tuning with the shooter's hand this is essentially the place where you're really going to learn okay if I apply a little torque um, and it's one of the main reasons I really liked the IQ when it was available just to mount on a riser because you can apply a little bit of torque to where you all of a sudden turn that bow a little bit and you can start to shoot see how that torque starts to apply your groove position bring that rest back start to see how the distance of your arrow rest to the front to the center or front of that riser how that all starts to change so yeah there's essentially a lot you can do with those four different things it just depends on how much time uh, you have and how much you want to become like RJ Clockmaker and think about this stuff 24-7 or if you want to just say okay you know what this thing is shooting as good as I can if you know it's hitting behind the pin every single time I shoot then go with that but you could definitely uh, drive yourself freaking crazy if you want to venture down all four of those roads um let's see here uh next question is what company makes the best spot and stock quiver this is the one that i used um it's actually the hoyt quiver um it's their carbon quiver i really liked this one this year uh it's super light uh all the arrows fit in there pretty good i did kind of whittle out the holes on the top a little bit you could you're supposed to use kind of the open hole um foam in the top for for mechanical heads and it certainly helps um but I, since sometimes i shoot fixed blades too i just left that original foam in there and kind of whittled it out i kind of took my knife a razor knife and just kind of cut those a little bit bigger but super light um mounts really quietly and you know it's it's uh pretty dang easy to go on the bow but that's for the Hoyt, um, Matthews makes a great quiver for their bows. Um, some of the, the fuse quivers in the past, um, actually, um, the ones that they used to make a while ago, Sharon and Harry still have on. They're probably 10 years old. Um, and then also uh, Tight Spot made a pretty dang good quiver, too, that I've seen. So it's just a matter of which one fits on your bow the best, mounts to the type of the sight that you have the best, um, those sort of things. Um, let's see, there's a question here about aftermarket strings um, and when I'm going to start doing mine. Uh, my process is not going to be, it's going to happen, but it's not going to be a quick process. Um, you know, I've got a substantial amount of machinery that's still being built. Um, I can tell you that the types of servers that most anybody can buy for you know five grand um, definitely did not give me the results that I wanted so um, I'm actually doing you know fully custom builds um, for the machinery for that stuff just based off uh, my experience with this I wasn't able to get what I want with um, the types of machines that are on the market so I'm going to be building my own so it's going to happen. It's just not going to be something that happens quickly. So 
if you've got one, I mean, I would look around and try to find one that um, where you're able, if you do have an RX-1, you need to find one where people are actually building them correctly to suit that new cable system and make sure people aren't getting any type of twisting uh, to where you're getting contact with those cables. Um, let's see here. Uh, I'm probably going to do... I'll do two more questions here, and then we better get off. It's Sunday, and uh, I want to go hang out with the fam. So, uh, Mitchell Fisher one is saying you've spoken in the past about the importance of alignment of broadheads with veins. Um, once you've made up the arrows and sighted them in with field points, how do you accomplish this, or do you really try to do it while you're building? Certainly, the easiest thing is while you're building. Um, so a lot of times what I'll do is um, I'll go ahead and take the, you know, I'll take my arrows. I'll pretty much build the 12 that I like the most, and I'll take the first six. And especially if you're shooting fixed blades, go ahead and screw those, uh, screw those things on to, depending on your insert type, screw them on there. And, you know, you want to kind of align them during the build process if possible it's easiest with hot melt i mean with hot melt it's nice because later on once you're all sighted in you know you can actually take a little hot melt on your field point and warm it up just enough to where you know it starts to move or put your broadhead on warm it up just enough to where you can actually turn that hot melt and let it cool down um so if you don't do that, and then obviously you probably need to mark your actual broadheads one through six so that you know that their actual thread position is the one that goes with those arrows as you built them. But otherwise, um, you know, the Eastern Axis or the FMJs, they come with that little grinding stone and that allows you to essentially grind or sand off um, material off the shaft itself in a very very micro fashion to where you can get your um, threads to stop at the right position so that you can have a perfect alignment also that ASD tool that G5 makes which stands for arrow squaring device that tool also helps perfectly square off that um, yeah some people are saying that's why they shoot arrows that still allow you to use um, you know, hot melt just for that reason alone. Um, but I feel like, um, with that small little stone with the full metal jackets and I have, you know, I've been doing a lot. I think this year I'm going to definitely go back to a full metal jacket. Um, so, and that could be for a reason for you to find out later as well. Um, but those are the two ways to do it. And uh, let's see, Bama Esau79 is saying, what is the reason for doing the six fletch? Um, is that just for tournaments in 3D? So with Sharon's uh, arrows that she hunted with this past year, um, or shot with, she didn't actually, we didn't have much time for her to hunt at all. Um, but she was shooting a lot in the summer, shot really good. Um, and then also some of the talk that I did with Mike about his six fletch on his setups, um, just the six fletch kind of is a one. It's a it's a pretty cool. Looks pretty dang cool when it flies through the air. This particular one I'm holding right now won't because it's got the uh, it's all blacked out with the the black Max Stealth veins, the uh, limited edition veins. But 
you know, it's going to turn really quick, but I'm able to shoot more fletch, but in a much shorter, smaller, compact configuration to, again, where I can get this arrow turning fast, faster, stabilizing itself quicker, and um, also by shooting that smaller, uh, that little bit shorter vein, I was able to also go ahead and cut my vinyl uh, wrap that's on the back of the shaft. I cut about a full inch off that before I put it on. Um, so I've just really minimized that, uh, that weight on the back of that shaft as much as I can too. So I'm looking really, really forward to that. Now, one of the things uh, that I wanted to kind of conclude with here quick was last week I actually made a post um, showing people kind of the new emblem that we made for uh, the Knock-On Nation. Uh, this is a pretty cool emblem. It kind of represents a lot of things. Um, there's obviously, you're going to see um, a dead center X in the center of it, which you know, X always marks the spot for an archer. Um, there's 12 stars pretty much representing the 12 arrows that you shoot in an end for world archery type events for, you know, you want to shoot a 120 round, you're going to have to shoot 12 arrows. Um, so the 12, uh, the 12 stars represent those. Um, then you also see six bars or essentially six shaft partitions that represent the number of arrows that you shoot in metal match situations as well. Um, but one thing that I'm going to do with this logo, and actually what's cool about this, is there's going to be different levels of this knock-on nation emblem that are going to be associated with um, the new website and the new um, members site once this is done. Yes, I am still working on it diligently, by the way. Um, so these, these medallions and essentially war awards of different colors or levels of these medallions are going to be available to the members as they progress in rank on the number of arrows that they log it'll keep the new system will keep track of how many arrows you're shooting throughout the year so it'll log those arrows and as you progress a lot like with sky miles um, the plan is to you're going to be able to earn those different levels of membership as you um, complete certain tasks. Like, for example, maybe watch a series of videos on how to tie knock sets and loop sets. And once you can prove that you've done that well, you uh, earn an award. Uh, so it's going to be cool. But one thing that I want to say about this, um, and this pretty much is a result of there were so many people that I met at the ATA show. Um, and this is kind of spurred back to, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the people who have been part of the knock on nation, uh, for a long, long, long time are military people. Um, also law enforcement, those who protect and serve. Um, and I'm a big, big advocate to that. And that's really why I'm why we continually offer um, the Knock on Nation flag and now this medallion because I really want to make sure that people understand that there's a community here and regardless of what bow you shoot or arrows you shoot or releases you shoot or arrow rest you shoot, I don't really give a crap. 
Um, I just really like the fact that we're all in this together. Um, you know, my time with Andy and hearing a lot of his stories that he talks about in private um, give me a, even a whole different level of appreciation for this. So following this podcast, um, I've decided to do two custom um, knock-on medallions that I'm going to put out there for people to use as they, if they want or as they want um, for their, you know, if you want to use them on your social media. Um, the first one is going to be a Black Ops version, which will be specifically um, a Black Ops colored medallion. And this medallion, I ask all of you out there to police yourselves and utilize this medallion if you'd like. For those of you who have served in our military forces, those of you who fought on the front line, any of our vets, any of our black op guys, any of our guys that are out there working hard in the DEA or whatever else you do, uh, this medallion is for you. It's not something that I've earned the right to wear. It's or put on my profile. This is something that you guys have earned. So I'll post that on my Instagram feed and that'll be available for you to have. And once, um, once the new website is up and going, I will figure out a way for any of you who select that you are a serviceman um, or a military past, present, uh, you will be able to get this as your badge within your um, profile. The next one is going to be, uh, this is going to be specific to, uh, I'm going to pull this one up here. The next one is going to be specific to our um, men and women who are part of the police force or also uh, police and fire. And this will be pretty much a knock-on emblem based on the back, the blue. Um, so you'll have a blue center bar specific to you. So again, um, for those of you who are in the nation, who are listening, followers, uh, if you're not part of um, the service community, then these are not for you. These are to pay uh, respect and let those people identify themselves and separate themselves so that we can tell them thank you. Uh, as they post and all that good stuff. So I'm going to post that right now uh, following this podcast. And I can't say how much I appreciate everybody enough. You're all awesome. So it's going to be a big, big week. A lot of bow builds this week. Uh, I've got to start on this blue and orange one here uh, for the University of Auburn president. And then I'm going to move into a series of other builds. Um, I'll probably either have these in my insta story possibly some live feeds most of them i'll film aspects of it to um, have those videos available as well so have a good weekend everybody if you're listening to it now live if you're listening to it next week while you're working then uh hey just get through the week weekend's coming and uh make sure you do your diligence family shooting fitness Get it all done. See everybody. Knock on. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.